0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, how is Merritt Stiles, a relative unknown in Ontario politics, doing? Latest studies show not too badly. We'll give you the details on that. The People's Commission has released its second report on the Freedom Convoy in Ottawa, and they recommend these things and the recommendations need to be done immediately to help rebuild the confidence in that city. And Donald Trump has been charged with 34 felony counts of falsifying business records related to his alleged role in the hush money payments during the 2016 presidential campaign. What's going to happen next? We'll get into that with you, too. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Every now and then we'll get folks like Angus Reed who will do a, a survey and uh, say, look, how's, how's the government acting? I mean, how are they addressing the problems that we have right now? Uh, well, the short answer here in Ontario is uh, not very well. Uh, Angus Reid finds that uh, the, the Ontario uh, Progressive Conservative Party uh, is still as popular as they were. In other words, people said, "Yeah, we'd we'll probably vote for them if there were an election today," but we're not really crazy about what they've been doing. We're not really crazy about the way they've handled some of the key issues. On the other hand, uh, the NDP have uh, skyrocketed to a significant lead over the Liberals. They were, they were neck and neck there for the longest time, of course, but uh, under a new leader. Uh, they seem to be doing quite well. And I know that, you know, Mark Styles has only been in office a little while, but she was asked about that. You know, how are they going to vote for you if they don't even know who you are? This is what she had to say.
1: They haven't met me yet. That's what I'm going to say. They haven't met me yet. We're we're going to win this election. I feel absolutely confident in that. And uh, and I think that's because I know how to win.
0: So uh, optimistic sure sounds like it, doesn't it? But let's let's talk about these numbers and, and the, the way that uh, the people are feeling these days and the feeling about a, a new political leader here in the province of Ontario. And to get some insight into that, please welcome back to the program Peggy Nash, who is a former NDP finance critic and author of the book Women Winning Office, an activist guide to getting elected. Uh, Peggy, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Are you there, Peggy? Hello. Hello. There, there we are. Okay, I think we finally established contact.
1: <laughs> yeah, you got uh, out of it. Sorry.
0: Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about Marit Stiles, and then we'll talk about some of the overall uh, things that are in this, uh, this uh, last survey here about how uh, the Ford government is behaving. There's always a question mark when a new political leader comes in, one who is relatively unknown right across the province, uh, but to see the NDP jump uh, uh, to a huge lead in second place anyway... Uh, in uh, in Ontario right now. Uh, is it because of the leader? Uh, is it just because of the party itself? Uh, what, what do you see as you sift through the numbers here?
1: I think there's a few things. First of all, the NDP is the official opposition. So they get more airtime, more questions in question period, more media coverage, whereas the Liberals uh, have no leader and they don't even have party status. So it's it's very difficult for them to get any attention. In fact, their biggest danger right now is just being completely ignored. Uh, but for the NDP with a new leader, uh, they and a leader who has a very engaging personality, a very positive outlook, there is appeal, even if people don't really know her and and may not have you know, heard about what she stands for, what she wants to do, she does have a very positive, engaging aura about her. So she's a new kid on the block, and it's up to her to introduce herself to Ontarians and to make an offer to them that they will find appealing in the next provincial election.
0: Which is still some time away, I know, that we're talking about as if it's imminent, and it's not. And uh, as you well know, of course, uh, uh, anything can change in a week in politics. But mm-hmm. it just seems as if uh, 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 she's a leader who came around, as, as far as I can see, at the right time. Because, I mean, the things that she's espousing and supporting and and, and, and putting on, on her agenda – seem to be the things that people in Ontario are most upset about these days. In other words, affordable housing, uh, cost of living, affordability, and things of this nature. And according to the survey from Angus Reid, uh, they're not pleased with the way the Ford government's handling any of those issues.
1: Yeah, these these issues are, are really the bread and butter of the NDP. And whether it's rent control so that uh, people who don't own their own home can have predictable, affordable costs... Uh, whether it's uh, affordability when it comes to, to food and, and other other essentials. Um, these are things that the NDP feel strongly about anyway. Strong um, Medicare, uh, doctors when you need them. Uh, these are things that have, have been the bread and butter of the NDP. And frankly, right now, a lot of people are going through a tough time. Uh, you know, even people who may have been diehard conservatives, uh, people who are maybe in the GTA, who, who work hard every day, but they just can't get ahead. In fact, they're falling further behind. And they're kind of, you know, some people may tend to blame themselves, but a lot of people will say, hey, wait a minute, maybe the government's not working for me or acting in my best interest. So people do tend to pay more attention when things are going wrong for them. So it's well, an interesting time.
0: Yeah, and they are going to, and, and, and I don't necessarily know if if blame is the right word, but they're going to look to the government when things go badly as they are going these days, aren't they? I mean, you know, if I can't afford to buy a house or if I can't put food on the table, uh, there may be some self-doubt and say, yeah, maybe I'm, I'm not doing what I should. Maybe I have to get a better job, anything. But eventually they're going to say, oh, what's the government doing to try to help me out of this? And mm-hmm. the, the answer here in Ontario seems to be not very much. And, and But again, We'll break this down a little bit further here. I mean, the conservatives, the, the hardcore conservative supporters in Ontario uh, c- certainly do like uh, Ford uh, and they like the policies, but they seem to have different attitudes here. You know, their priorities seem to be somewhat different. They're they're more worried about uh, about uh, things like like crime and, and, and public safety, which are all very legitimate, especially in Toronto these days uh, with mm-hmm. some of the things that are going on in the city. But if mm-hmm. you can't put a roof over your head and can't put food on the table, uh, you're going to be looking to the government and say, what can you do for me here?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you're a, a bedrock, diehard conservative member, then you're not going to change your opinion, no matter no. what the ups and downs of the economy. Uh, you're you're with Doug Ford and you're sticking with him. But there's a lot of people who gave the conservatives their vote, who uh, really found appeal in uh, Doug Ford's, a kind of everyday man approach to them. They felt that maybe he understood them, their way of life, but now as they fall further behind, they're thinking, well, hey, maybe maybe he didn't understand me. Maybe he wasn't talking about me. I think of those millennials who are being told to save for retirement, save for a house, save for their security, and they, they can't even make ends meet. So it's um, you know, there's a lot of people who feel right now that that they're they're being left behind, and you're right at a certain point in time, you get past asking yourself, "What can I do differently?" And you begin to say, "Hey, wait a minute, maybe I need uh, some help here from from better policies that that will will help me my family get ahead.."
0: Well, and maybe the best example of that was the, the provincial budget that came out just a, a week or so ago. Uh, you know, Peter Bethlehem, probably the finance minister, talked about this. He was on the show the day after he delivered the budget. Uh, and and why I asked him at that time, as I'm sure many people have asked him about, well, wh- you know what, why didn't you deal with the affordability issue here in this province? And, and, of course, they tried to throw a couple of things at you and say, oh, yeah, we are. But you look at this survey, though, Peggy, and here we are. Uh, 70% of the progressive conservatives, those who are identified as, as progressive conservative supporters, 70% of them said that the Ford government's doing a lousy job on health care and a lousy job on housing affordability. So even, even, as you say, the faithful are getting a little upset.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I mean, if you're a multimillionaire, then you maybe are happy that the government's trying to uh pay down the deficit and keep taxes low because that disproportionately benefits you but if you're at the other end of the economic scale when the economy starts to soften as it is now when costs are up and and there's not as much job security a lot of people uh they they want government investment to help them uh, and it doesn't have to be in terms of social spending you know what's what is the Ontario government do doing to send a message to grocery chains, the large chains, that hey, enough is enough. You're making uh, multi-billion-dollar profits, and the average person can't afford to adequately put food on the table. Uh, there are things that the regulatory things that could be done. Rent controls are another example where just putting some rules in place that help the average person would go a long way and doesn't cost the government, but it sure helps the average Ontarian.
0: Well, and I, I, the other message here, I guess, and you touched on at the beginning of our conversation here, is uh, when you look at the, the polling numbers here, as I say, that you know, if Doug Ford still, if, as I say, if there's going to be an election, he'd still get reelected. He's got about 38%. Uh, the NDP are not far behind, but the Liberals are, are dropping like a stone uh, and and I, I, I'm wondering just what their strategy is. Like, I, we understand that it's still a couple of years away, more than two years away from uh, the next provincial election. Uh, but, you know, they don't have a leader. They don't even seem to be talking about a leadership uh, con- you know, contest at this stage. Uh, still some people kicking the tires. But, uh, you, you know, if you're out of sight, you're out of mind as far as the voters are concerned. And that's going to put a huge amount of pressure on whoever they finally do select as a leader, whenever that's going to happen, uh, to try to bring these guys back up
1: well, i I wonder if the lead the liberals are are asking for a hail Mary pass with a new leader that they're looking for a a, a justin trudeau like person, not in terms of his personality, but in terms of his ability to take a party in in third place and raise it to to become a contender. But they are a long way from that. It's very difficult if you don't even have party status. They are not even an officially recognized party at this point in the province of Ontario. And we don't have a date for a leadership convention. There is no real standout candidate at this point. Um, uh, you know, I, I never underestimate political parties to be able to Regroup and reengage and reinvent themselves, but right now it seems like they are—they are so far down that most Ontarians provincially don't seem to really be giving them much consideration. So they've got a—they're in a deep hole. They've got to dig themselves out, but it remains to be seen how they're going to do.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and you and I have talked about leadership in the past, federally and provincially, for that matter. And it, it, I think it always is helpful when a, a political party can put a face to that party. Uh, you know, whether it's, you know, well, Doug Ford is the face of the Progressive Conservative Party. Maurice Stiles for the NDP. In other words, they can identify and say, okay, yeah, that's that's who I'm talking about here. Uh, you're right. The liberals don't have that that person. They don't have that individual that is, uh, you know, the the standard bearer for the party. It usually is the party leader, but there can be other dynamic people on the team as well. But uh, you've got to have that, and you've got to have something that people can identify with. And and it looks like the NDP have done that with Mark Stiles. It's it's still early days, certainly. But uh, it, that's, that's the thing that seems to be lacking with the Ontario Liberals, and they, uh, they seem to be wandering in the abyss of these, day, uh, these days, and, and that cannot be good for them. And as you say, you can't simply rebound and, and say, okay, now we're going to jump from third to first. It, it, it happens in politics every now and then, but not that often, that you can rely on it, can you?
1: No, and the other thing right now is uh, with a new leader, and certainly the Conservatives are always fundraising. The NDP with a new leader and an appealing new leader, a fresh face with, with positivity and optimism, they'll be fundraising. The Liberals right now can't be raising very much money. And that hurts them. Again, without party status, they don't get the resources of an official party uh, through the legislature. And they can't be raising much money if they don't have a leader. Um, and, uh, I mean... They are really banking on getting the right person. But as we know, the the last person they had, um, Stephen del Duca, he didn't quite do it. They're just people didn't find him appealing as appealing clearly as Doug Ford. And uh, neither he nor the NDP was able to make any headway. So uh, you know, it really depends this time who they get for leader, but it also depends on when, because, again, if they leave it too long, they are going to be so lacking in funding that it's going to be difficult for a new leader to actually mount an effective campaign.
0: Sure, and if you have to start telling people who you are and what you're standing for, that's, that's not campaigning. That's, you're, that's, that's, that's going to be problematic and a big challenge. I'm
1: trying to survive.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly, day-to-day. <laughs> Peggy, thanks so much for this. It's always a pleasure having you on the show.
1: Thanks so much. Have a good day.
0: You too. Peggy Nash, of course, a former NDP finance critic, uh, with uh, her perspective on what's happening here in the province of Ontario. And like I say, these polls uh, are, are their snapshot. You know, that's how people feel this week, and that could change considerably. Uh, but, you know, we're at that point right now where we're looking for some immediate help from government, especially with things like affordability and housing. And uh, here in Ontario, uh, there's a lot of people that are just not impressed at all with the way this government's handling things. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
1: The Ottawa People's Commission says it will make 25 recommendations to rebuild community trust. The volunteer panel released the first part of its report back in January after hearing from 200 residents, many of whom said they would experienced harassment, violence, and assaults during the protests and truck blockades. The group called the Freedom Convoy a colossal violation of residents' rights, saying many people felt like prisoners in their own homes. Meanwhile, federal court in Ottawa will hear a second day of legal Legal arguments today by groups for and against the government's use of the Emergencies Act to clear the protests. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press.
0: So that is only a small sampling, I guess, of, of the feeling that people still have sometime time after uh, the traumatic experience that they went through. And And I don't know that enough time was spent. I don't know if they can even spend as much time as you probably need to. Uh, to talk to the people that were impacted by that. I mean, you know, because some of the folks that were doing the protesting, of course, was, oh, what's the big deal? So what, you know, we, so you know, the band plays a little loud. You know, get, get over that. It's a whole different situation, which I think is why it was so important uh, for this uh, People's Commission uh, to be struck. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Michael Kempo. Michael, of course, is an associate professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa. Michael, a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Bill. Let's talk about this commission itself. And and how important is it to to not just do the work that they're doing here, but to give the people of Ottawa a voice in this whole process? Well, it is
2: important. We've got sort of a variety of accountability mechanisms that are grinding on here. We obviously had the big public inquiry led by Justice Rouleau that wrapped up its business earlier this year with its judgment that more or less the thresholds had been met and the government was within the limits of the law, even though there remains a lot of work left to do, Uh, we've now got a group of volunteers, this People's Commission, that took public submissions uh, from citizens of Ottawa and um, brought them to the public for, released that report about the lived experiences of different segments of the community through the protests or occupation in Ottawa. And one of their major points was, of course, that this protest was not experienced by all Ottawans in the same way, that people who had um, issues, either if they had hearing problems or vision problems, essentially uh, were locked in their homes. They couldn't get around during that period to essential medical treatments and so forth. So they've made that point, and now they've followed through with very good recommendations about getting ready for the future, Uh, future protest, in addition to seeking apologies and maybe
0: some financial compensation for wages lost and things like that. Let's talk a little bit about attitude here. And by that, I mean the attitude towards the people that should have been uh, in leadership capacities there, and specifically city council and Ottawa police services. Uh, There's a lot of animosity. I've talked to a, a number of residents. I've got family that live up in that area as well, as you and I have talked about in the past. And uh, they don't trust the police. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And they're not really enamored with city council either. How do, how do you bridge that gap? Well, it's going to be a long haul. Uh, I mean, the, the police have uh,
2: reconstituted their top leadership. We have a new chief here. Uh, it is important to stress that the Public Order Commission uh, didn't pin it all on the former chief, Peter Slowly, and in fact said it seemed like there was some significant scapegoating going on of that one person. So new leadership and a completely reconstituted civilian board for overseeing the police. The police services board has um, mostly new membership, new provincial appointees. And critically, the mayor is properly now on the police services board. Uh, In my view, it's absolutely essential to have your mayor take their place on those boards and not delegate it to somebody else. Because the mayor, of course, is the key link between policing planning And broader city planning. And that was put to good use in policing protest in Toronto, for example, where at the time, Mayor John Tory was able to coordinate between the board and other city agencies to make sure there was a bit more of a coordinated response. It's going to take a while. There's got to be public outreach and critically, I think,
0: admission of mistakes made. Uh, which is obviously, that's, that can be very difficult for politicians to do. Uh, and as you said, that basically, I guess one of the points of the discussion here uh, is, is to develop an emergency plan. Not that they're expecting that there's going to be another trucker convoy, but I mean, anything of this nature. Uh, and I know that uh, in, in the, the documentation I've seen on this, city council says, well, already, we already have one. Well, apparently it wasn't working very well. Uh, so this is, uh, I think, an opportunity for these guys to kind of, you know, hit the reset button here, isn't it?
2: Well, the reset button in a big way and also just to basically acknowledge that ottawa is a g7 capital there are hundreds of protests here every year there's the potential for large protest at any time these days given that we know that any inflamed issue can quickly mobilize people across social media and they're capable of raising money so set the city up physically and politically so that it is prepared for mass protest Obviously, a big issue there is preparing the parliamentary precinct uh, with a sensible plan for pedestrian thoroughfares, cutting it down to traffic and so forth, so that people can access the property to make their point, but can't use things like vehicles or other machinery to block off the center part of the city.
0: Is, is that going to be the new normal, Michael? I mean, we've seen other cities that have had to incorporate things like that, you know, bollards on sidewalks, uh, you know, just anybody who's been to Toronto in this area here in the last little while. I mean, you go by Union Station and, uh, the, the basically, there's no way a vehicle can possibly get down there because of the concrete abutments that are up all over the place. Uh, are they considering? I know they did that for a period of time, but is that just going to be the way things are going to be on Parliament Hill from now on? It will be, but it won't be how it appeared in
2: the first year where they just threw up a few sort of unwelcoming looking uh, concrete barricades and bollards and so forth. If you shut it down, you don't leave it as it is. You then build up that environment to make it a pleasant space for the public to spend time and that has safe spaces for people to come in and conduct protests because this is obviously something that federal parliaments attract. So, in other words, you make it a usable space for people to access their public parliamentary buildings in a way that's safe. We don't need vehicles in there to do that. So you've got to transform that space and make it friendly to retail and all that sort of stuff. this is this is not beyond our our ability as urban planners. I mean, we see it mm-hmm. in in major capitals
0: around the world. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the fact that you know, we're talking about the the convoy and the protest there, but I mean, it wasn't too long before that, of course, that we had the terrible incident, the assault on Parliament Hill and the uh, the, the shooting of Nathan Cirillo uh, by the war memorial, too. And I know there was some talk about doing something about curtailing uh, vehicular traffic there, too. And it's it's that sad that it has to be that way. But I guess one of the purposes of this committee, uh, and I would think one of the shared purposes of this committee and the police services and city council is to try to create a sense of public safety once again. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean,
2: a big part of their recommendations, too, that I'm very attracted to is they said we should have some citizen advisory boards um, that are there to provide the perspective of people who are most impacted by major public events to the city and to the police services board and police in times of crisis. To me, that only makes sense. You'd have these sort of existing boards of citizens that when things go sideways can quickly be consulted, who can provide information and suggestions to those who
0: are making decisions. In other words, you've got your structures ready to go. So where does this go from here? I mean, this is the second report that this committee has done. Is this going to be an ongoing process or uh, is their work done? So their work is pretty much done, apart from following
2: up on making sure that sensible things are done by the three levels of government to prepare for next time. So I think we can expect them to comment on whether they see any of their recommendations taken seriously or implemented by those levels of government. Um, we're going to grind on with the court decision from the federal court as to whether or not uh, the judge sees any merits to the arguments of civil liberties groups that the government was out of order, uh, You know, essentially breaking with what Justice Rouleau concluded in his non-binding Uh, legal decision in his uh, or legal analysis rather in his report and then we're waiting on hearing from I have to say the quite mysterious special joint committee of parliament and the senate looking into these matters as well Uh, people may remember that people were showing up and giving evidence they were almost duplicating it seemed a lot of the work of the public order commission they committed at the end of last year to reporting by the 31st of march of this year And since we haven't really heard much of a peep from uh, this special body, I think they might be waiting to hear what the People's Commission concluded, what Rulo concluded, and where the courts go, where they could then sort of put it all together and add some sort of added value last word. But if that's their plan, they should really tell us because they're just leaving the public
0: basically spinning at the moment. Yeah, exactly, and and as you've mentioned, I mean, you know, I, obviously and clearly, rightly so, we're focusing on what happened with the, the trucker protests. But this is Ottawa, and 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 you, in Ottawa, you as you see these things all the time, not to this magnitude necessarily, but it's probably going to be reassuring, I think, especially to some of the people in the downtown area, Michael, that uh, that there's a plan in place now uh, that, that can be incorporated when something like this happens.
2: That's it. The other thing that worries me too, though, is if we end up with basically say four competing reports. Rulos, the judgment of the federal court, the People's Commission, and then ultimately this strange special committee. If the reports go in different directions, I get a little worried that people will basically just pick the report that they prefer, which everyone mm-hmm. is already basically aligned with their opinions going into all of this, and you know essentially wave these reports in one another's faces, because then everybody's got a little bit of supporting evidence. That's why I'm a little hopeful that that final joint committee can refer to all of the reports, maybe even have a couple of dissenting opinions in their report, really trying to bring it home to people that there's a bunch of different ways of looking at this. Everybody's got a little bit of a point to make, but we've got to put it together into sensible plans to balance lawful protest in the future with people's right to basically exercise their constitutional rights or their charter rights to live their lives in reasonable peace and order. We've got to put it all together. We can't just wave competing reports in each
0: other's faces. Exactly. A lot of work yet to be done on that. Michael, always great to get your perspective. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks so kindly. Take care. Michael Kempe, associate professor of criminology at the university of Ottawa.
2: You're listening to the bill
0: Kelly show podcast on 900
2: CHML.
0: Well, if you had a television on at all, anytime yesterday, you probably caught at least a little bit anyway of the, uh, the, the circus that was in Manhattan at the, the courthouse. Uh, Donald Trump uh, got arraigned yesterday as expected and uh, facing 34 charges, felony charges. Uh, and uh, of course, Got back home last night and made the speech. We'll talk about that in just a couple of minutes. But to give us a quick rundown on what happened over the last 24 hours or so, uh, Global's Reggie Cicchini was there and here's the report.
2: But it was a long prosecutorial road stemming from hush money payments to cover up affairs, allegations Trump has long denied and frequently criticized as a witch hunt.
0: He's frustrated, he's upset, but I'll tell you what, he's it's not going to stop him. it's not going to
2: slow down. With Trump now in less control of a situation than he optimally prefers, what he does and says going forward
0: could only add to his legal problems. No amount of money and no amount of power changes that enduring American principle.
3: Donald Trump pleaded not
2: guilty to all 34 charges and while a gag order was not put in place, both sides were cautioned against making statements that could be interpreted as threatening. Reggie H. Kinney, Global News,
0: New York. So many different aspects and so many uh, roads we could go down here, but let's uh, get some overview and and a historical perspective on this as well. Uh, To do that, we're pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Jason Opel. Uh, Jason is an associate professor and chair of the Department of History and Classical Studies at McMaster University. Professor, pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks for the time today. Oh, thanks so much. Um, actually, at McGill, I just wanted to make that make that clear. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm, like, I'm reading. Okay, I'm one line down. McGill University in Montreal. Fabulous. Let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, what happened yesterday from a historical standpoint. I think everybody is aware, of course, uh, just about every time the, the networks came back on, you know, the first U.S. president to be indicted, former U.S. president actually to be indicted, but not the first politician of some note to, to be indicted. And we can go all the way back, I guess, to Spiro Agnew and, and others of the, uh, the, the Nixon era uh, to get an example of that,
3: Oh yes, uh, there's actually examples going back to the 1790s about um, congressmen or or people running for Congress being charged, or in, in one case actually being in jail uh, while they're running for office. Um, there are in, the, in recent history there's been a there's been over a dozen congressmen sitting or otherwise who have been. Charged with uh, felonies, in some cases done jail time. Um, however, this is it's still totally unpre- unprecedented because no one in American politics is nearly as visible. No one in American politics is nearly as um, powerful and um, sort of looked upon as a president or ex-president. And so to see that person who used to be jetted around on Air Force One and carry around the nuclear codes um, process in a kind of dimly lit. Uh, dingy lower Manhattan uh, courthouse was really extraordinary. Uh,
0: it's, yeah, as, as you said, because of the individual. Let me, ask, by the way, ask you just uh, from that historical perspective again, as these investigations and the investigation about uh, the, the that perfect phone call with uh, Ukraine uh, going back a few years now with the impeachment processes, uh, the attorney general at the time, of course, Bill Barr, said you cannot charge a sitting president. Uh, there seemed to be a lot of debate about that uh, as to whether that's just a, 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 a process or if that's actually a law or if it's just uh, common sense i it, it was very gray and, and obviously because of the fact that, uh, yeah. that he was still in the white house nothing much happened especially because the the you know the attorney general wasn't going to allow it to happen uh but was it inevitable that, that this day yesterday was going to happen though i think it was it it was likely given the
3: number of um credible investigations into Mr. Trump that preceded his presidency and that happened during his presidency. I'm thinking most especially the current cases um, that are building against him in the state of Georgia, most notably three different Georgia statutes um, prohibiting interference in or conspiracy to interfere in the the, results of an election. Um, He, in another call, perfect or otherwise, did. they seem to do exactly that. And so in the sense that he uh, Mr. Trump has all often been pushing the envelope or well beyond the un- envelope, um, this is this was not unexpected. Indeed, I expect that there will be uh, more indictments from the state of Georgia, different indictments for different crime um, against Mr. Trump and several other members of his close inner circle
0: in the coming weeks. And, and the Michael Cohen aspect of this, of course, is going to play a large part, I guess, when they, they finally get down to, to, to business here. Uh, Cohen's already served time for this this whole episode with Stormy yes. Daniels, uh, but I, and I know some of the Trump supporters, and I'm sure you saw a bunch of them yesterday too, professor, saying, "Well, come on, somebody saw what you had an extramarital affair. What's the big deal?" Uh, but as uh, as uh, District Attorney Alvin Bragg said yesterday, that was not the crime. <laughs> the crime was right. what they did with the money and how they explained the money, and then and that's I guess that's what ele- elevated this stuff to a felony level, isn't it?
3: That's right. So the idea, the, the the argument here is that because of a number of um, sort of fraudulent business practices and potentially with tax implications to conceal monies paid, that itself would be a misdemeanor or, or not a crime at all. But if you're doing these crime, if you if you're doing such a behavior for the purpose of committing another crime, most notably in this case, probably um, election ca- campaign, election finance fraud. Or um, for purposes of of inappropriately affecting an election result, then that raises to a felony offense. Um, just from a legal standpoint, rather than from an historical one, I do think the case for against him in Georgia is more kind of obvious and open and shut, given the you know the really clear statute that he sure seems to have you know um, uh, confronted or, or overrun, uh, and there's reams of evidence about that. Uh, The case in New York is more complicated, and it also dates back to nearly decades-long investigations into the Trump organization's um, tax and business uh, and banking practices that might uh, have violated a number of statutes at the state level.
0: Yeah, the the history here is is fascinating, and and it's ironic, I guess, that here they are going at it uh, from a financial standpoint. In other words, it's it's not his behavior that's that's on trial here; uh, it's his financial uh, doings. I, sh- I guess, as we share slave, which has been in, in question for quite some time, is not it? This this, as you say, predates his he his he run for the presidency back in 2016
3: absolutely yeah i mean there's been questions about um his sort of financial empire and ability to not pay taxes or minimal taxes dating back actually to the late 1980s um and hundreds actually of civil suits from various creditors and business partners um but like if i could bring in one other point and that is that there's another set of charges that might come from the federal level involved in the events of january 6 2021 and many people in the United States, approximately 64% by the most recent poll, who disapprove of the events of that day, which is to say that they are uh, they are opposed to the attempted violent overthrow of um, the normal electoral procedures to bring a new president in. I think, you know, for that majority of Americans, some kind of reckoning about what happened on January 6th, 2021 Simply needs to happen for the United States to continue to function as a as a democratic state, and um, there are current. There's currently a federal investigation into that, in addition to um, the investigations that Congress led, which, although not legal strictly speaking, they can give criminal referrals to the Justice Department. And anyone who was watching television on that day, anyone who has you know experienced what occurred around that day. Um, you know, that is the is the thing that I think needs to be reckoned with. Just speaking as, you know, someone from the United States, th- that just needs to be um, aired and um, I- in some way adjudicated uh, for the United States to be able to sort of move on from, you know, an extremely difficult period in its history.
0: Uh, but it's it's going to play out right in front of us. And, you know, we haven't even talked about the Mar-a-Lago situation and that investigation, which is ongoing. Uh, there's the I guess the potential here isn't the professor for everything to, to just kind of fall on his lap all at once here with these investigations ongoing. We don't know what stage any of those other ones are at right now, do we?
3: We don't. I mean, the Georgia one is pretty imminent, I I would say, the next couple of weeks uh, there. The the federal ones are much more complicated, and the federal ones, as you alluded to, refer to both the January 6, 2021 um, riot or coup, whatever you want to call it, as well as issues with documents in Mar-a-Lago. now, whether this will all fall on Mister Trump's lap at once, um, you know, it will come over in the, over the next six to twelve months, and then he has court dates coming up for this um, indictment, and then that raises the other point that a lot of um, sort of establishment Republicans, you know, rep- representatives in Congress, um, many of whom personally hate Donald Trump because he almost got them killed on January 6, twenty one, um, I think you're going to see them kind of quietly back away, so that you know they're going to. They're going to make statements and and put out um, uh, declarations of support for Mr. Trump to to who remains extremely popular with Republican voters. But uh, you know they won't die on that hill. I think that they'll they'll back away from it. And I do think Mr. Trump will find himself both in legal multiple legal peril uh, and increasingly isolated um, from uh, other Republican leaders.
0: It's going to be very difficult for some of those people to, to make that move, though, isn't it, uh, Professor? I mean, you take a, a Kevin McCarthy, for instance, uh, who was very scathing in his criticism of Trump the day after the, the January 6th insurrection. Uh, but a week after that, after spending some time in Mar-a-Lago, of course, he seems to be uh, you know joined at the hip with Trump. Same with Jim Jordan, who's uh, chairing the, the committee investigating the investigation right now, too. Uh, when, when you're that tight, uh, it's going to be pretty difficult for these guys to say, you know, I'm not on his team anymore.
3: Yes. I mean, that's true for the hardcore Trump supporters. That's true. So Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, yeah. Matt Gates. These are a few others. But there was just a few who were at the courthouse yesterday and at his speech last night. See, that's telling, right? Because, you know, the more powerful Republicans, such as Mr. McCarthy, um, you know, they're... they're they're politicians. They, they they need to please many people at once, and so as such, I think that you'll see most of them, um, although not the hardcore Trump supporters, you know, make statements about you know the politicization of these processes, um, and then you know not be there when there is a protest planned, or not say anything when a new indictment comes down. I think it'll be a slow kind of game of detaching uh, from Mr. Trump for the simple reason that they, the Republican leadership. Is well aware that Mr. Trump is primarily responsible for three consecutive disappointing, if not, well, I'll I'll say disappointing results in general elections. In 2018, 2020, and 2022, Mr. Trump, by any stretch of the uh, the imagination or any responsible uh, analysis, dragged down the Republican votes and resulted in substantial setbacks or losses for the Republican Party. That's why they will back away and they'll do so slowly.
0: Well, let's talk about the presidential contenders here. I've got a couple of minutes left, who, who all, by the way, seem to be in defense of Trump. I mean, when, the, when he was in, indicted, of course, uh, even Mike Pence and, and DeSantis, uh, you know, we talked about what an abhorrent process this whole thing was. They didn't say he was innocent. Uh, they, it was the process itself. Uh, but a bunch of those guys want to be the next president. And at some point, they've got to divorce themselves from Trump. Do you see that happening sooner or later? Uh, later
3: in the cases of later in the case of DeSantis, who's the most likely, you know, the only one I could see yeah. right now beating Trump, but earlier for some others. So for example, uh, Asa Hutchinson, who was the former governor of Arkansas, extremely conservative, um, but also anti-Trump. Um, he announced his presidential run. He accelerated. He was going to announce it in a few weeks. He accelerated the announcement just to to come just after the indictment came down, as a way to say, "I am an alternative to the drama, the uh, the tawdry, you know, kind of tabloid dimension of Trump, and to this sort of one-man wrecking show that Trump has become." So for Hutchinson, probably Pence as well, you'll see them break from Trump. I would say, you know, if they haven't done so already, pretty soon. It's DeSantis who will hang on the longest because he has the most awkward tango to <laughs> in front of him. He has to dance with and win over Trump's supporters or maybe half of them or so. So he can't break from Trump too early or too loudly. He'll have to wait and wait and wait until uh, he imagines things swing around to, to his um, uh, uh, favor early next year, in time for the primaries, when Mr. Trump is having to go between court dates in New York and uh, primary debates, I think you'll, that's the time you'll see DeSantis break with Trump and say, let's go a different way, and I'm the standard bearer for that new Republican Party.
0: Yeah, one of the intriguing things I heard yesterday, too, was uh, when uh, District Attorney Bragg was having his press conference after the uh, the arraignment, uh, and, and they asked him quite specifically, you know, your predecessor did not want to pursue this. The federal government looked at this or the Justice Department did not pursue this. What changed your mind? And, and basically he said, there's, we have new information uh, that, and of course that wasn't included yep. in the indictment yesterday. So it, I'm, I'm curious to find out exactly what was it that swung him over because he seemed uh, rather hesitant to get involved in this when he first took over too, didn't he? He did. Indeed, a couple of people in his office resigned because they thought he wasn't yeah. going fast enough. Or,
3: but I, th- I mean, I, I think just reading Teeley's, what's going on there is that late last year and early this year, um, Mr. Bragg's office was responsible for getting guilty uh, tr- um, uh, de- determinations against the Trump Organization for tax and business fraud. They have seen all the records. They've seen more financial uh, records, more of the financial sausage making than anyone has seen, no doubt while doing that work again against the trump organization rather than trump himself they came across all kinds of dirty laundry um linking mr trump you know more directly than previously had been to hush money payments to improper transfers and to all kinds of non-disclosures that amount to criminal offenses so i think it's what he's referring to and if i make one, one more point there is a certain bad face in those who say, "Well, you know, the Feds weren't interested previously. The Feds weren't interested previously because the Trump administration told them to back off uh, when, when Trump was president. I mean, that, that's why many of these investigations went nowhere because the Justice Department, controlled by Mr. Trump's, uh, you know, uh, inner circle, told them to stop. So, you know, the process is is it's more like it was it was you know improperly stalled during his presidency and is now." Uh, 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 turning on again.
0: Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I saw that clip uh, with uh, uh, the former, of course, uh, Southern District of New York, uh, uh, Mr. Vance, talking with Chuck Todd on MSNBC and basically said that the Justice Department told him to stand down. Uh, right. Is is that going to be pursued in any way, shape or form now?
3: So I kind of don't think so because it would, it's, it would be such a There'll be such a Byzantine process to basically bring some kind of claim against another part of the federal government. I don't think that'll happen. I think what instead you'll see is evidence being put forth during these processes where the district attorneys say – here is some evidence. This is the evidence that we, we we received since the last, since basically over the last year. Um, and as for why this wasn't aired earlier, um, you know, please see our colleague's sort of detailed report about exactly what Mr. Barr, um, uh, uh, most likely him, especially, told us to do. Or not do during Trump's presidency. You had alluded earlier to that sort of legal theory, and you're absolutely correct. It's a gray area. It's not constitutionally, you know, d- d- described whether a sitting president can be tried for crimes besides high crimes and misdemeanors. Um, so that's just the kind of well that we never really thought about this. And what, what everyone thinks about it, no one says, or no one can re- responsibly say that a an ex president. Can't be uh, criminally responsible for his actions. Certainly he can. And um, that's what Mr. Trump is facing now.
0: Well, uh, more to come on this, as they say, for probably uh, years to come, as it looks like anyway. Professor, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. That's uh, Professor Jason Opal from McGill University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.